everyone. As you'll probably figure out fairly quickly, Brenna and I recorded this episode on CODA in advance of its historic Oscar wins. With that said, it's still a good conversation, so we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Taste Sequepan territory in the unceded traditional lands of Sequepan And today's text, Coda, takes place in Gloucester, Massachusetts, the traditional home of the Pawtucket and Agawam peoples. Joe, I am mm-hmm. really excited to talk about this movie with you today. Like, <laughs> possibly more because I have questions for you and I have mm-hmm. thoughts, but also I really enjoyed this movie because it's a really cute movie. I really liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a very, very cute movie. So, oh, sometimes I get a good feeling, yeah. yeah. I get a feeling that I never, 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 never had before. You're the girl with the deaf family? Yeah. yeah. I just want to tell you right now. And you sing. Interesting. What are you doing next year? Working with my family. Let me tell you now, I've got a feeling, I feel so strange. Everything about me seems to have changed. I've been coaching for Berkeley College of Music. I can help you get a scholarship. Folks, if you have not had the chance to watch CODA, it is an acronym. It stands for Child of Deaf Adults, and it is a remake of a French film called La Famille Bellier, and that was from 2014. This film premiered at Sundance in 2021, and it is written and directed by Sean Hader, and I'm just going to quickly give you the cast list, and then Brenna, we can chat it out. So we've got Amelia Jones as Ruby Rossi. She is from the UK, which I forget every time I watch her in Lock and Key, because I think it's always a Canadian thing. (laughs) Then we have Troy Kotzer as Frank, her father, who is a deaf actor. Then we have Daniel Durant, who plays Leo, her older brother, who is a deaf actor. And then we have Marley Matlin as her mother, Jackie, who is, of course, a deaf actress. And then playing Ruby's love interest is Ferdia Walsh-Pilo, who is uh, Irish. And folks, if you have never seen the movie Sing Street, I would highly recommend it. It is another delightful, feel-good, sort of underachiever kind of storyline. And then finally, we have Eugenio Derbez as Ruby's choir teacher, Mr. V. So, Brenna, you said that you really liked this movie. And I'm curious, uh, why is that? a really lovely coming of age story right like 
the central plot here is that Ruby, who is the only hearing member of her family, she has been like the linchpin of the family for her whole life Mm -hmm. because she can communicate with with people who aren't deaf. And uh, the family is working class. Her dad is a fisherman. Her brother works on the boat with her dad. And she does as well, but she's the one who communicates like business deals and stuff. And there's this whole Mm -hmm. background story going on where all the fishermen in this community are getting totally screwed over by the guy who runs the books. And so it's this family that pitches the idea of starting like a fisherman's co-op to keep more of their money. And of course, they Mm -hmm. need Ruby to translate, or at least they think they need Ruby to do all that labor. And there's this lovely story going on it's not just about ruby who is discovering a talent for singing which she already knew she was really passionate about and wants to pursue that but it's also the story much more quietly and maybe my one critique of the film is that i really wanted more of leo's story leo is the older brother who wants more opportunity to be the kind of face and voice of the family in a way that Mm -hmm. ruby has always been it's a really nice small-scale family conflict without being, you know, about a family that is falling apart. They're very much not falling apart. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. The emotions felt really true to life to me. There's a scene that made me absolutely bawl where Ruby's trying to help her dad understand what it feels like for her to sing. And so he's like, got his hand to her vocal cords, well, not just, mm-hmm. but to her throat, so he can feel the vibration of her vocal cords as she sings. Like, this desire that all of us have to share the most important parts of ourselves with the people we love, and those barriers exist for all of us, right? In this case, it's something mm-hmm. really concrete. It's it's someone who loves music, and the people they love most in the world are deaf. But Everyone has those boundaries and barriers Mm -hmm. around sharing like deepest, truest parts of themselves with the people they love. And I just think this film does it really beautifully. I think all the performances are really good. And, you know, I love a working class family where they actually Mm -hmm. work, right? (laughs) They actually like struggle with money and all those kinds of things. I mean, it ticks a lot of boxes for me. So, yeah, I just I enjoyed it. Yeah, I I found that this movie is very deeply relatable, right? I think that's yeah. one of the reasons why people have gravitated to it so strongly. It's not doing anything particularly new or novel, apart from the fact that it is casting deaf actors in really prominent roles and giving them a nice showpiece. Like, And we'll talk about the representation and some of the criticisms and all the other stuff that has emerged out of this film as it has gained awards traction, but... Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that works so well about it is that it isn't trying to be boundary pushing. It's really just kind of this loving testament to familial bonds. And yeah, as you said, it's a delightful coming of age story about Ruby's discovery of who she wants to be. There's a sweetness about this film without it being saccharine, I guess, right? And I think Hmm. it's rooted in the fact that the relationships are not perfect they feel really honest and also like ruby's dreams are very human-sized right so often Hmm. when we see these movies it's like the working class kid who wants to go you know to europe to study or to the other side of the country ruby wants to get as far as boston and like yes obviously berkeley college of music which is where she wants to go is an amazing place to study but like Mm -hmm. there's something very um 
I guess, human scale about the story right. here that I think it adds to that. I don't know. I hate saying relatable because it's like what everybody says <laughs> in undergraduate I think essays it applies, when they don't though. have anything else to say. But I do. I do think it applies. And I think that, I don't know, we're in a moment where everything sucks. And I, th- mm. I think it's okay for people to want to watch a movie that, you know, makes hope and connection and relationships all feel maybe a lot more possible than they feel right now for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. I don't know. No, absolutely. I 100% agree with you because as I was watching it and feeling gently emotionally manipulated to cry (laughs) or feel things at various points in this film, you know, I thought to myself, okay, well, is it the film or is it the way that you are handling things right now. And, you know, I I put on Twitter when I was watching this, I said, I am so ready for just like a messy, feel-good cry. And this movie 100% delivers. And I could understand some people saying, oh, actually, it is saccharine. No, it's not relatable. It's false. And it is manipulative. And I probably wouldn't disagree with them because I do think the film knows exactly what it's doing. But for me, this is also exactly what I wanted and exactly what I needed. And when it delivered that, and I did have a good messy cry, I felt relieved and satisfied. Like, yes, thank you. You have earned my money. Please take it and go. (laughs) Well, and it's not to say the film isn't doing some really interesting things. Like, obviously, (laughs) the film is really quiet, right? Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes, there is no dialogue. Um, Oftentimes, there are whole scenes that are taking place in American Sign Language. And so Mm -hmm. the film itself is very quiet. We have a lot of really interesting soundscapes of like what the house sounds like to Ruby that nobody else Mm -hmm. in the family can hear. We have a lot of the sound of the ocean and fishing, like sound plays a big role in how the film works. And there's, I think the scene that everybody talks about when Ruby is performing yeah, and her family is sitting in the audience and they're hearing silence, right? So it's not that the film isn't playful with Mm -hmm different kinds of strategies for articulating this world. Um, I think it is. I think it really is. But I also think that it's really telling a very straightforward story. Yes. About people whose very straightforward stories we don't get to see very often, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that, yeah, I think that it's okay for that to be a really welcome thing, right? Like if if you sit and you watch this and you feel just really relieved to have this story kind of wash over you and these very fine performances like bring it home like that's mm-hmm. great i just it was a very satisfying watch for all of those reasons you know yeah no absolutely cuz i did spend a bit of time thinking about representation in this because you know mm. we had that really to me meaningful and insightful conversation about reservation dogs and you rightfully raised the fact that there was an omission in the representation in that film and here it's kind of like all right here we go again right this is an underrepresented community of people who typically don't see themselves on screen and we're actually casting it sounds weird to say own voices own experiences because Mm -hmm. we actually have deaf actors playing deaf characters and the movie I think just by sheer existence, it does a good job of reminding us that this is not 
often seen on screen, right? The experiences mm-hmm. of these characters, we don't often get to see deaf actors integrated in any kind of meaningful ways, or you have to seek it out. So mm-hmm. I definitely think that's one of the strengths of the film. And it's one of the reasons why people have latched onto it because they're like, oh, there is a novelty to this because we just don't get enough of it. Well, and it's something that the film is doing really deliberately, right? And I think it would not be inaccurate to note that the bankable star in this film is Marley Matlin. And Marley Matlin is very open about her unwillingness to budge on things like deaf actors Mm -hmm. playing deaf characters and ensuring that American Sign Language is seen as a language, a full Mm -hmm. language that people live and think and interact in. Um, And the film does a really good job of that. It's an interesting contrast. You know, I was reading up about the French film, which we didn't watch, in fairness. Mm -mm. But one of the big critiques of the French film was that it used a predominantly hearing cast of big, big French actors. Okay. And they didn't learn to sign fluently because it would be a really difficult ask to learn to sign fluently for the production of a film. But the end result was that deaf audiences couldn't follow the sign language in the film. They had to rely on the the subtitles. And so Mm -hmm. you think about the the difference in this film, which, you know, we've talked on the show before about how it can be a really pleasurable experience to be invited into a world or given a a look into a world that isn't yours, that doesn't belong Mm -hmm. to you. And not having your hand held necessarily through it, just kind of observing. And in many times when the family is arguing, particularly if the family is in conversation without Ruby, um, that's mm-hmm. what it felt like to me. Like, I'm sort of here observing a world that doesn't belong to me. And that's a really good reason to watch art like, yeah. in general is to have access to these other worlds. And I think the film mm-hmm. does that really well. Yeah, like there's a moment where Leo goes to the bar with the other fishermen and he struggles to follow because he can read people's lips, but he's trying to follow a conversation where people aren't making they're not making any effort to involve him so they're just speaking normally and he and they're drinking so they're getting increasingly sloppy right like, yes yes yeah <laughs> so he ends up getting into a bit of a bar fight when somebody jostles him and spills their beer down his back and in the aftermath he he ends up having this kind of meet cute moment with ruby's friend who works at the bar and there's this moment where he basically talks about what happened but he does it all in american sign language and she doesn't sign so she can follow but she doesn't understand everything and we don't get subtitles for that Mm -hmm. because she doesn't understand him and she is our proxy like the audience's proxy in this moment and i love moments like that you know it's like Mm -hmm. where we see people speak other languages that are not english and sometimes characters don't understand them and there isn't an advantage of having subtitles like i just think it's a really creative way to emphasize the fact that you know what maybe we should all learn a little bit of sign language so that we can follow the general gist and the reality is is that we have seen what has happened to leo but also there's such an emotive force to american Mm -hmm. sign language and like there's still facial expressions as people are talking or signing and you can get the gist of it, right? Like you're going to miss the nuance. You're not going to understand all of the context, but it is a language that has, yeah, there's like an emotional component to it that allows people, even if you can't fully understand everything, you'll still be able to follow. Yeah, hugely so. 
Okay, so so the French film didn't do it particularly well. I would argue that Coda does it reasonably well, but it doesn't mean that the film is exempt from criticism. So one of the things that I saw was this idea that the family is so reliant on Ruby to be their permanent interpreter and how that doesn't accurately reflect real lived existence of deaf people. Yeah, I've been reading some really interesting sort of back and forth on this topic because the Americans with Disabilities Act would require that, for example, in the scene in the medical clinic or in the scene at the school, that Mm. interpreters be provided by the clinic and by the school, right? And I've also seen some response from deaf people who grew up in small communities that like just because the ada says you're supposed to have something doesn't mean that you would have it and like the odds of there actually being an interpreter accessible to that clinic for example like they might just fudge it and rely on a hearing child to do Mm -hmm. that labor right but you're the criticism i think is pointed in that it does make ruby the Ruby has to be the adult in the family often Mm -hmm. because of the way the rest of the world treats her family, right? And the rest of the world treats deaf people often like they are less capable. And so Ruby has to pick up the slack of what people assume her family is capable of. I think, you know, it's narratively useful, but it's also troubling because there's a real sense of like the sort of able-bodied savior that I think the film is trying to take apart in in its desire to sort of like let ruby have a different life and i guess it sort of circles back to my my criticism of the film which is i think if we had more of leo's story then we would have less of that that dichotomy happening if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah i i struggled with this a little bit as well because part of me thought you know here's this movie doing a good job of giving opportunities to deaf actors to really prove what they can do it's telling a captivating story but also we're centering the able-bodied person and i know that that is the narrative and this is adapted almost directly from the french story like the big difference in the french version is that they own a farm they're not fishermen Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. everything else is the same from what i've gathered and I feel the same way as you, though, where I wanted more of the parent story because it's clear that at one point they tried to fit in or even immerse themselves in the community. And at some point, we don't know why or when, they pulled back and stopped trying to make efforts to integrate or engage with able-bodied people. And I really wanted a bit more about why. Because, like, Marley Matlin's big scene is when she comes in and talks to Ruby about the relationship that she had with her mother, who was not deaf, and Mm -hmm. how it drove a wedge between them. And she was worried that because Ruby wasn't deaf, that she would have a similar wedge. Like, they wouldn't be able to make the connection. But, like, her storyline, Marley Matlin's storyline throughout the film, is that she doesn't like able-bodied women. Like she, she calls them the B word. Like hearing B words. Jump gun. I'm going to interrupt you here. I think we should say hearing, because um, deaf people don't necessarily think of themselves as disabled. So we should use the line deaf and hearing. Yes, and you know what? I knew I was saying it wrong, and I'm very thankful for you interjecting and correcting me so that I can now uh, do better. So Marley Matlin's whole storyline is how she can't connect, or she she doesn't want to try to make the effort with hearing people anymore 
And I just really wish that we could have gotten a better understanding about like how and when that happened mm-hmm. and how it ended up influencing them because it's so clear that the family has pulled back from engaging with the other people in this town. And I thought that that was an interesting piece too because normally what you would see is you would see hearing people say like, oh, we can't understand you so we're not going to try to work with you. And if that's the case, that's worth addressing. But it seems like it was kind of like both sides were saying, okay, now that you've got this daughter who can hear, we we can just use her as the interpreter. Yeah, and it, I, I agree with you. I really wanted more of that story because what we end up getting is almost entirely through montage. So mm-hmm. like through these montage scenes of the family building the business and we can see Ruby's mom sort of on the outskirts of these other women and Mm -hmm. slowly start to make an effort to reach out and make jokes. And the, these other members of the community respond really positively. Right. Mm -hmm. But you're right. There's so, there's so much missing backstory there. And, and it's a shame. Something that you could say that's really good about this story is that it's very focused, right? Like, right. The film knows exactly what story it wants to tell, mm-hmm. but we lose the backstory of these deaf characters who uh, might be more interesting, or at least yeah. they might have something to say that we haven't seen before. And I, I wanted more of that. And I think I wanted more of that in particular because they're all really compelling actors <laughs> to watch. Yes. And I just, I wanted to see not just more of them on screen, but more to do like, the scene with Ruby's father, that scene in the back of their truck is, mm-hmm. you can just see how good an actor Troy Kotzer is in that scene. And it's like, oh, I wanted, I want all the actors to have this and I want him to have more. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it too is that you and I have seen so many stories about a person who is pulled between their desire to escape from their current community and go off to something maybe bigger and better and find themselves Or, you know, they've got some kind of family responsibility or they've met someone and they want to stick around and see how it is. So as much as I enjoyed all the scenes with Ruby and Miles, because I think both of the actors are very compelling, it's just such a familiar story, right? Mm -hmm. Like they have good chemistry and you want to see them succeed and blah, blah, blah. But also you're just like, all of these scenes mean that we're getting less of Troy Kotzer. We're getting less of Daniel Durant. We're getting less Marley Matlin. And the reality is, is like, those are the stories we don't see as often. So even though this film is giving us more than we usually get, there was still that opportunity where we could have gotten even more from these talented actors. And you're just like, that's kind of the story I'd rather see, even though Coda as it stands is quite good. Yeah, I agree completely. One thing I will give Coda credit for is well, sometimes to comedic effect, but making the characters, well, making real specifically people. the deaf characters, not just real people, but sexual people. Yeah. Like oftentimes when we read stories about disability, they're very chaste, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and the same with, you know, stories of deafness. Like, Mainstream audiences have a real hard time with the idea that deaf or disabled people would have sex, right? Mm-hmm. For whatever reason. And this film is very 
it's very frank about it (laughs) it's it's very frank about it but it's one of the things that it's one of the things that ruby is grossed out by right the fact that her parents are like can't keep their hands off each other and it's something that miles points out to her as like because miles at one point says you have this perfect life and ruby's like i'm sorry Mm -hmm. pardon me and one of the things that miles points out is like your parents are in love with each other like i don't think you get how rare that is and how like beautiful Mm -hmm. that is and so that was a really nice thing and i think that I'm glad that they included that, but I think that the complexity of those characters could have definitely been pushed further. Yeah, agreed on both counts. Um, Yeah, it felt fresh and exciting in that way where you're just like, yeah, we're going to acknowledge these are human beings who have sexual urges and (laughs) act upon it. Love it. Love all of that. Yeah. Joe, I don't know if I have anything more to say about the movie movie itself, but I am hoping that before we finish up today you can school me a little bit on Mm -hmm. (laughs) why sometimes it seems like when we get a film like this particularly like a quiet pleasing film like this it sometimes seems like the more people like it and the more it starts to create buzz i guess around award season the more backlash it starts to receive because we're definitely seeing that in this moment just pre-oscars as people talk about this movie. Yeah. So folks, we are recording this in advance by a couple of weeks before you hear it. So we're recording this the week before the Oscars, which means that everybody is at a fever pitch about how films are performing (laughs) because the sort of awards show buzz is it's called pole dancing. And (laughs) it's because you basically what the studios do is they shop their stars around to various like publicity events. So they do talk shows, they do public appearances, Uh, obviously voting bodies have the opportunity to get screeners and like watch the movie, but there's also all kinds of like perks and privileges and so on. Cause the Oscars, like a lot of other things are a popularity contest and whoever buys and sells their film the hardest is the winner. And the reason that this is important context is because the reality is, is that films that win don't necessarily always reflect the best of whatever the year has to offer. So every year people lament films or performances that didn't get acknowledged. This year, there's controversy about how certain awards are being cut from the televised broadcast as though Mm. that aspect of filmmaking is not important, which of course it absolutely is. But, you know, if it doesn't get screen time, it's deemed sort of second tier. And the, the way that this comes into play, particularly with something like Hoda, is it's a populist argument. And I don't want to throw anyone out of the bus, but the reality is, is that coda is gaining a lot of momentum as it's going into this final week so it has won numerous accolades most recently things like the screen actors guilds award the baftas which is the british equivalent of the oscars it won critics choice awards producers guilds so it it appears to be a front runner all of a sudden and people think well this is a familiar feel-good emotionally manipulative film is it worthy of potentially winning a Best Picture Oscar or a Best Supporting Actor for Troy Kotzer or a Best Adapted Screenplay for Sean Hader? Those are the three Oscars that it's up for. And the answer is maybe. And that Mm. really 
frightens people because they feel like there are more quote-unquote important and valuable contributions to cinema that are more worthy of recognition and part of that is that this is a very simple familiar story but also that it is a film that connects with quote-unquote conservative average filmgoers as opposed to cinephiles who can truly appreciate what good cinema is so there's a lot of value judgment being placed on the controversy as well so I have two observations, and one is that you can never remove the context from the award season, right? Like, mm-hmm. people exist within space and time. And as I said yep. earlier, when I was on my monologue at the beginning of the episode, <laughs> I'm not surprised that people want a movie that makes them feel good right now. Yes, absolutely. And maybe it's okay for the awards to reflect that right like in the third oscars of a pandemic or i guess we didn't have one the first time right but like you mm-hmm. know three years into a pandemic people just wanted to feel good like surprise right. you know um that's my one observation my second observation and this is actually more like a more a question for you because you know this world so much one of the critiques i'm seeing online or one of the concerns i guess is that the way voting works you might have a polarized number one selection Mm -hmm. but a lot of people will have the same number two and what people are worried about is like coda is a lot of people's second favorite film and so it Mm -hmm. may win the oscar not because it's the greatest but because it has the most people saying it's good enough Mm -hmm. does that make sense for how the awarding system kind of works yes as far as i know and of course the difference too is that for each body you vote for whatever guild or association you're a part of so if you were part of the cinematographers guild you would vote for that but then you also get to vote for best picture okay so like you wouldn't get to vote for acting because you're not a member of that community but everybody gets to vote for picture so the reality is is we're dealing with the largest number of votes, but yeah, it becomes far easier to vote split. And, you know, we've also raised the number of Best Picture nominees over the last couple of years because people felt good, valuable, important films were being cut out of the conversation, like, mm-hmm. especially around, uh, like, Black Panther and other very popular films that were also very good. People said, well, why aren't these films in contention? Why aren't they being discussed? So we increase the number from five to up to 10. So in any given year, you could have a minimum of five, but up to 10. But every time you add a film that potentially makes it easier for people to siphon off votes. And then yes, like the second or even third choice ultimately ends up winning best picture. I think the other piece that people are concerned about is that Coda skews by sheer virtue of its content, a little bit more conservative, right? Mm -hmm. It's a feel-good white person film about this, you know, whippersnapper daughter realizing that she wants to do better, but also the family sort of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. It's a very quintessentially American story. It's set in the Midwest. So I think a lot of people worry that this isn't kind of avant-garde or it's not reflective of what like we want to strive for for liberalism and progressiveness and people feel like this is an antiquated story when there's you know maybe better options that are more reflective of where we hope to be and i think that that's again a lot of value judgment but it's also unfair to put onto a film 
Yeah. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that interpretation. I hate it that people compare this film to something like Green Book, which had like really regressive and even reductive considerations of race relations in America. I don't think Coda's mm-hmm. doing that same kind of thing. So I hate that conflation. But I, yeah, like, is this film maybe a little bit more attractive to an older, more conservative voting member of the Academy? Sure. Yeah. Okay. One, I just want to make a note that Joe just moved Massachusetts into the Midwest, but we do know that it's in England. <laughs> Which is hilarious, because <laughs> I literally just posted an article on Facebook about, like, <laughs> shows that are set in the Midwest and how do we define the Midwest? And folks, I just don't know geography. I'm lousy at it. <laughs> And number two, it's interesting because I don't disagree with all those points you made about progressivism in cinema, except to say this might be an indicator that like disability, deafness, these kinds of constructs, they're mm-hmm. just not on the eye of progressive filmmakers. Like we mm-hmm. very rarely see these kinds of stories coming from those filmmakers. And I think that that's interesting, too, because it's an argument that crosses over progressive movements, right? Like, right. whether access is prioritized by progressive movements, like across the board is something I think we probably have to talk about. And the other thing is, like, people are seeing power of the dog, I think, as the... Yeah. If Coda wins, it's like unfair to power of the dog. But like, yes. power of the dog is like a white people Western. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really... I don't know. I just think... But it's because it's a revisionist take on the Western directed by a female director and it injects queerness into a quintessentially masculine text. So I think people feel like, oh, it's actually deconstructing in a really interesting novel way. And you're like, okay, yes, but... <laughs> but yeah, but that's in- it's interesting because people see like the injection of queerness into a Western story as a deconstruction of the form. But mm-hmm. they see the injection of deafness into a coming of age story as, eh, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> right? Like Correct. it's just yes, it's just interesting. And you're right. I think ultimately it is fascinating how awards become about everything but the actual film, right? Yes. And so mm-hmm. much about like the context and who they're responding to and whether people are sort of having the right opinions about things. And I mean, ultimately, I don't know if this should win an Oscar. I do think that if Troy Kotzer wins, that that's pretty awesome because I think it's a pretty great performance. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we haven't seen a deaf actor win since Marley Matlin. And now everybody knows what William Hurt said about that. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I just think, I'm, I'm just, I'm glad we had this conversation, Joe, because it is a world, the whole awards and sort of accolades world. Mm -hmm. is one that I think is not really well understood by people who aren't sort of in that world. And um, it can be really confusing as just an observer on the outside, like who just doesn't understand why everybody just got mad at a movie that seemed fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think the other thing that's worth noting is that this is outrage and disagreement that is also contained to particular sections of social media and probably doesn't accurately reflect real world conversations. Sometimes we forget, oh, we're living in a little bubble and we're interacting Mm -hmm. with like-minded or, you know, we have easy access to people who disagree with us. So it's very easy to lose sense of reality when we're looking at like, oh, what is film Twitter outraged about today? I think the reality is it's like Coda is a film that was purchased out of Sundance for $25 million, which at the time people thought was an astronomical, just very silly amount for Apple to pay. And then 
they have managed to parlay that into an awards contender that makes people feel good. Whether you think it deserves to win Best Picture, whether you think Troy Kotzer deserves Best Supporting Actor, and so on, is ultimately immaterial. I think at the end of the day, the most important thing is, yeah, we, we had some interesting conversations around representation, around the weird reactions that people have to award season nominees, but also... Did people enjoy this film? Did it bring them joy? Did they like it? To me, that's worthwhile enough. Yeah, I agree. And I'm glad we talked about it. And I'm glad we watched it. And it wasn't really on my radar because I'm, I don't know, an ostrich. So I'm really thrilled you programmed it. So I really enjoyed it. Well, yeah, and and this is fun for us too, right? Because the reality is, as as a YA podcast, we don't often have the opportunity to talk about a potential Oscar-winning film, right? Like most of the films we cover get dismissed by adults or the academy because it is just a coming of age story and so it was kind of fun to get to say like oh we could now talk about this movie and all of the other implications that normally fall outside of the parameters of our podcast yeah yeah it's good it was good fun and a good breath of fresh air and i do recommend it to people like Regardless of the the drama around it, if you want to feel really nice on a Saturday night and get your cry mm-hmm. out before Sunday morning, it's great. Yeah. Go for yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. So, Brenna, we're moving ahead to another yeah. potential feel-good text. Yeah, I was going to say, like, if you've enjoyed conversations about whether things are too frivolous, then join us next week for, I'm really excited <laughs> for this one, um, we're foraying, foraying? venturing into yeah let's go with venturing uh we're venturing into middle grade territory which is not normally joe's favorite place to hang out but he actually programmed this one so i'm excited Mm -hmm. we're doing better (laughs) meat than ever yeah so this is coming out on netflix relatively short but sweet book uh, about a kid who wants to make it on broadway and right now i'm excited because we've got some lisa kudra action do we really yeah i think she's his aunt Yes. Yeah, and Joe, it's worth noting that this book is both a Stonewall Book Award winner and a Lambda Literary Award winner. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's time for some queer rep. Let's let's hit it. Excellente. And of course, folks, if you are reading along for a book club with us, then you should also be reading George and or Melissa depending on when you pick up your book or if you're getting it from the library, when they bought it. And that is, of course, written by Alex Gino. Yeah, it's a slightly earlier date this time around, folks. So I really hope folks are reading this one. And I think we're going to have a really good conversation about what's in a title, right? Mm, Yes. Mm -hmm. So, Brenna, if people wanted to share their responses, how would they get a hold of us? Well, if you want something long form for book club, email is always the best and it makes our day, hkhspod <laughs> at gmail.com. But if you've got something smaller, you just want to talk to us about how Coda is super fun or alternately, you are also mad about Coda. Sure. You know, if you're mad, why don't you find Joe? That's at oh. B Stole My Remote. It's the letter <laughs> B. And if you want to speak joyfully about Coda, then you can find me. I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray of the Day. Jeez. Okay, sure. <laughs> if you want to get both of us, we're at HKHSPod on the Twitters or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Yeah. Oh, Joe. This was fun. Thank you for this one. Yeah. I'm I'm excited to keep it kind of light and happy next week. Yay. It's about time. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, folks. Uh, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. 
you see Ruby's mom. Oh, hang on. Okay. <clears throat> it was the cat, not the kid, just FYI. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs>